and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, uh, Very excited about today's show, though um, I may not sound it because I'm I'm a bit under the weather, and uh, we had a the Dispatch staff uh, sort of retreat thing at my house last night, and um, that didn't help make me. It was fun time, but it didn't make me feel better. So I may be handing the uh, gas pedal to our always ebullient and effulgent guest, uh, fan favorite um, in, in many quarters, uh, my colleague at the uh, uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, uh, Matthew Continetti. Matthew, welcome back to the Remnant. Thank you for having me, Jonah. I'm curious which quarters I'm not a fan favorite in, and I would like to visit those quarters and have a stern talking to them. Um, you know, the problem when you have a very diverse audience <laughs> is that if you always get positive feedback for everything you do, and you also get negative feedback for That's everything true. you do. And um, the I have this long drawn out theory about how many a career has been ruined or many a reputation has been ruined by people listening too much to their biggest fans. And I can give you many, many examples of that. So when some people say, hey, enough with this conservative intellectual history nerdery you know uh bring back the guy who runs the stakeum twitter account i'm like no i'm gonna have continenti on here and you're just gonna have to deal with it so um well, it's a pleasure to be here great great to have you all right so we'll we'll do the rank punditry first i think i think it's because it's i mean everybody's already had their say on virginia and new jersey but um that doesn't mean we can't do more of it so um what are your you're a virginia resident right mm-hmm. I am. And um and you're racist. So like uh justify your vote. <laughs> right? I mean, like that's that's what I'm told. If, I'm assuming you voted for Yunkin. I'm not gonna, you know, bow to sacred, but you know, yeah. well, I we're was a nonpartisan institution here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, uh let, safe to say I, I did support Yunkin in the selection. Um and the fact that so many uh liberals and progressives are explaining the vote away as um uh white backlash or racial coded politics uh suggests that this was a true uh republican victory because whenever whenever republicans win on uh on issues the explanation is always racism and um i mean it's just it's just absurd dog whistles generally right codes so if you i mean this was the reagan election in 1980 uh, I mean, it was, it was the Bush election, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's all, it's a, it's a recurring theme. Now, look, one of the main issues on which Yunkin won was this uh, controversy over the public schools. And um, I think there's been a misreading among a lot of the pundits uh, in the focus on education. The, the, the truth is education was uh, second uh, to the economy in one exit poll and third uh, to the economy in another. And education itself is a very capacious category, right? I mean, obviously, the controversies over uh, critical race theory and school curriculum weighed heavily in this election. But there's also the fact that Virginia schools, including in Northern Virginia, were closed for about 18 months during this pandemic. And it it totally transformed the way that parents thought about the school system there. And then not only did you have McAuliffe's gaffe, which clearly, I think, was decisive in the election where he said that 
he doesn't want parents telling teachers what to teach, he decided to close out his campaign by having the head of the teachers union address the Fairfax County Democrats. So so weird. It was so weird, but it shows you where the Democratic Party is um, on the education issue. And that, which is to say, it's not representing students at all. It's not even representing parents, but it is a um, functionary of the teachers union. So so education mattered a lot. Um, The debate over uh, critical race theory, I think, um, you know, allowed the left to go to its kind of um, white backlash um, uh, grab bag, uh, where they mm-hmm. where they throw out these arguments whenever Republicans win. But I have a um, I have a very uh, positive reading uh, of this uh, election uh, for a few reasons. The main one is the candidate. I have been trying to find an image of Glenn Youngkin frowning. Mm-hmm. And I can't. And I think that speaks to a basic positivity and f- and uh, future orientation to him and his campaign that appeals to uh, independent voters. Um, at the same time, he uh, figured out that um, the way to kind of bypass the former president isn't to confront him and his supporters, but it is to, you know, um, accept their support, but then also move beyond it. And it reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, these comparisons are always um, kind of flawed, but uh, Ronald Reagan would often say, I don't, you know, if you want to support me, that's great, but here's what I care about. And here's Just what, because you support me doesn't mean I support you. Exactly. Right? And I think yeah. Youngkin was able to pull that off in Virginia. And it's very helpful um, for other Republicans across the country. Yeah. So I, I want to circle back to that in a second, because um, I think I think there's a lot of wishful thinking in that. But we not in your position, but in like the oh, the Trump thing is over. I don't think that's right. right. But we, we will get to that in a second on the critical race theory thing. The thing that you know, it's only two points that. I want to make or that bother me about it is it's a classic sort of Mott and Bailey on a grand scale, right? It's that the CRT, you know, CRT is just a shorthand for a general approach to race stuff. That's how parents see it, right? They don't know what CRT is. I don't know, you know, like CRT is a complicated thing. I've read Derek Bell and all that kind of stuff, but it's, let's, it's, but the problem is, is so you have, you have, Imbram X Kendi and these guys going around making these arguments about how it's not good enough not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist and that, and therefore, which is a very critical race theory adjacent point of view. And, and, you know, and all white people have racial baggage they must atone for and all these kinds of things. And they do it sweepingly and broadly. And, uh, and then the second there is pushback on it, the response from the sort of the left and the MSNBC pundit class is well this specific thing isn't critical race theory so you've made this up and it's a racist dog whistle and it's one of these classic sort of the left is the aggressor in the culture war and then when the right pushes back in any way they're the they're you know the ones to blame for everything and um but the other part of it is just it's there's i was saying this on the dispatch podcast the other day but like 
even if it's true that there was some dog whistling to this, I mean, I'm sure for some people, you know, for racist people, they're going to hear talk about critical race theory in a way that's racist because they're already racist, right? But I don't think it makes, it is a racist dog whistle for non-racists. Um, but the thing is, if you're, um, if your theory about why you lost, first of all, it boils down to just a single factor, you're going to screw it up again, right? You, we'll just fix this one thing and then we'll be fine. We won't say defund the police anymore and then no one will dislike us anymore. But moreover, if you boil it down to the one factor that makes you feel the most morally superior to everybody else and lets you demonize everyone you would disagree with as a bad person, that doesn't attract voters very well. I mean, that is a strategy to say, we're going to double down on calling people who don't vote for us racist and somehow we'll make it up in volume or something. It's very weird. I, it and yeah it, it doesn't work um and it alienates people and um a few things uh, first this supposedly racist electorate in virginia elected the first uh, black woman as lieutenant governor um, yeah. in, in the, the state's history also elected a uh hispanic uh, state attorney general um the it's just it's absurd on its face the second thing is um you know right crt has become this grab bag basically that stands in for whatever parents dislike about the schools. Right. And it includes stuff that isn't actually related to race. It includes stuff about the trans uh, genderism and, um, you know, uh, uh, sexual um, education. Um, all of this kind of gets funneled into uh, critical race theory. And so it, at, a, at a basic level, it's not the, the the rebellion against critical race theory is not even ideological. It's just commonsensical. What happened was the pandemic, by forcing students to be in the home uh, while they taught, I think created a moment of radical transparency for parents and the education system. They saw what their children were learning, right? Um, right. And 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 then coupled with the George Floyd moment of last year, the, uh, the ideas of anti-racism and uh, critical race theory that had always been percolating in the academy began very quickly to seep down, not only into secondary schools, but also elementary schools. And so if you're the parent of an elementary school child, and that child is coming to you and asking you about, you know, were we... Uh, because I'm a, a, a you know, so-called white person, does that mean that I'm bad? You know, um, right. uh, should I feel uh, shame all the time? You're a parent. Uh, it's very commonsensical to say, this is crazy. What, what's going on here? Um, also, uh, it's been less reported on. There has been a kind of a, um, a, a, a subterranean effort in Virginia to uh, water down this, um, I when I grew up, they were called gifted and talented programs, right? Right. Um, they have a different name now, a different bureaucratic jargon. But um, this has been uh, always an issue, especially in Northern Virginia and uh, Thomas Jefferson High School, which is the magnet um, STEM it's school. Like, it's like the best or the second best science school in the country. Yeah. You know? And uh, they already changed their admissions practices in order to uh, advance equity. And that was controversial. And there was a feeling that a McAuliffe administration would begin to water down um, advanced placement and gifted and talented programs. Youngkin explicitly said he would protect uh, these standards. And I think that uh, 
even even more than the controversy surrounding CRT in Loudoun County, um, yeah. gave permission to voters to to support him. So, I mean, do you have a theory on this? Because, um, you know, I, I think what happened, I mean, I think it's pretty plain that what happened was they saw the Newsom race in California and thought they could do to Yunkin what they did to Larry Elder, which I think on its surface is a stupid thing, right? They tried it. It didn't work. They saw white suburban women fleeing them in the numbers. So all of a sudden, McAuliffe doubles and triples down on ginning up the black vote, right? And so he had that statement, which didn't get as much attention as it deserved, where he was saying, look, it's outrageous that two-thirds of the teachers in our state are white. We got to get, you know, we got to get it down to, you know, we got to hire all these new black teachers and all this kind of stuff. It seemed, even if you agree with that as a matter of diversity, which I have issues with, but whatever, as a matter of pan, desperate pandering, it just looked really, really bad at the last minute. But the thing I don't get, I mean, other than having Randy Weigarten anywhere near your campaign after 18 months of school closures and all this stuff, is it's not like, like, McAuliffe cut his teeth in politics as a shill for Bill Clinton. There's no way Bill Clinton would have run this kind of campaign, right? And the the it's not like McAuliffe had to like denounce teachers or throw the teachers unions completely under the bus, but he could have been much more nuanced about this stuff and, you know, taking the side of parents on things. Oh, fun fact. You know, the last time I met McAuliffe face to face parent teacher night at our private, my daughter's private school (laughs) (laughs) where he was very involved. Um, But, um, uh, like, I don't understand why he had to signal that he would be a complete and loyal vassal to the teachers unions. Couldn't he? It's not like if he had offered some equivocation and some mild criticism, it's not like Randy Weingarten was like, damn it, now we got to vote for Yunkin, right? I mean, it just it, like he had maneuvering room that any serious political operation would understand gives, you know, would, would give you a pass on. You're like, oh, look, I'm going to have to beat you up a little bit, but you understand. And, I'll take care of you after the election. Randy Weingarten has made those deals probably a thousand times in her career. I just don't get why they didn't think they should do something like that amidst all this. There was a lot of not thinking on the part of the McAuliffe campaign. You know, watching his campaign in the final weeks uh, before the election day, I I was kind of continually reminded of that great Saturday Night Live sketch um, from the uh, debates in the 1988 presidential election between uh, yeah. Dukakis and Bush, where John Lovitz is playing Dukakis. And after uh, Dana Carvey as Bush gives a completely garbled answer, um, they turn to Dukakis and John Lovitz goes, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Right. And, <laughs> and that's McAuliffe. That's been McAuliffe yeah. since the turn in the campaign over the summer. And especially since McAuliffe's gaffe on September 28th in that uh, gubernatorial debate um, where he made the comment about parents and teachers, he came into this election thinking that it was going to be handed to him on a platter Yeah, that he would then use the governor's mansion as a springboard to a Democratic presidential candidacy in 2024. And here comes Glenn Youngkin, this, you know, uh, six foot seven, goofy uh, businessman in a fleece who, um, you know, accepted the Trump endorsement, 
um, uh, a, you know, kind of pandered to the Trump vote in the primary, but then very quickly redefined himself as a suburban dad who is a Virginia native, unlike McAuliffe, it should be said, uh, mm. and who wants to improve his state. And it clearly drove McAuliffe crazy. And I've, yeah. I, I, another signal moment for me in the final weeks was when Obama came to campaign for McAuliffe. And he had a line where he said, you know, extremism can come with a smile and a fleece vest. <laughs> and that just showed how frustrated the National Democratic Party was in trying to define Yunkin as Don Jr., as, as a MAGA radical. They couldn't do it. And they couldn't do it mainly because Yunkin has this negative capability. John Sears, the former Reagan advisor's phrase for um, the quality of a politician where uh, that um, they just kind of uh, deflect, uh, deflect attacks. Like mm -hmm. you, you can't, you can't look at Glenn Yunkin and think, crazy person you know he doesn't have right. he's not he doesn't have the 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 tinfoil um uh, yeah. and, he, and he doesn't have some you know limb growing out of his head yeah. he, and and so that that i think just drove democrats mad i think the guy i mean i'd be curious if you have a better example but i think the guy with that sort of that negative capability of just being impossible to demonize in all of them at least the last hundred years which and it only really works in the television era anyway right um is eisenhower it's like you know eisenhower you're just like you're not gonna say this balding guy who looks like a librarian who like invade successfully invaded europe you know is anything other than like a solid dude you know and you and and that's the russell kirk line you know yep. he's not a communist he's a golfer you can't you can't and that's why both parties wanted him to be their nominee. It was just, he was just a guy you couldn't. I guess Bob Dole had it. It was certain a bit, but Dole seemed really mean. Yeah, Eisenhower uh, couldn't. You know, Bob was always mad. You know, yeah. and always referring to himself in the third person. Uh, Youngkin um, doesn't does neither of those things. Um, and um, this just speaks to the importance of candidate selection. Yeah, let's face it: the Virginia GOP changed the way in which the nominee was selected to go to a kind of a bizarre semi-convention, semi-drive-in, ranked choice vote type thing to help Yunkin because they mm -hmm. recognized he was the most electable candidate. And you know what? It worked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Mr. Weak Parties is our problem guy. I love it. I mean, I, I would have been, I guess it's better that it had some patina of democratic legitimacy sure. in the format that it used. But I would have been fine with a bunch of guys smoking cigars. It's okay. This is going to be our guy, you know. But you know, I mean, sometimes it can lead to uh, the wrong selection. Um, sure. You sure. know, I mean, the previous. You think about the previous two uh, Republican uh, gubernatorial nominees in Virginia. You know, Gillespie and Cuccinelli. Both of them uh, just did not perform well as candidates. And one, yeah. um, Ed uh, Gillespie, the former RNC uh, chair, you know. Uh, he ran as a businessman, but there has to be something else. There has to be some yeah. other quality, uh, some uh, other issue. Uh, and in this case, uh, in Youngkin's case, it was education. And Cuccinelli ran uh, kind of a proto-Trump campaign right. and, um, and focusing heavily on immigration. And you know what? The Wall Street Journal points this out. 
uh, in their editorial on the Virginia race. And I think it's right. Uh, they don't recall seeing a single Yunkin ad focused on immigration. Yeah. And in a state like Virginia, where it's an, uh, where I'm from in Fairfax County and where I live today, an incredibly diverse community, um, I think that helped the Yunkin campaign. And in fact, uh, it's unclear what percentage of the Hispanic vote he won. But um, look, the whole state shifted red. So he's he's certainly won more than the previous Republicans. Yeah. I mean, again, exit polls are not wholly reliable, but they look directionally like it's just a, a, it's almost a demographic shift as much as a political shift. But all right. So, but this, so this is a good place to segue. I agree. Candidate selection matters. I agree. You know, the, I mean, the really interesting stuff which you know someone is very upset about in Mar-a-Lago is how Yunkin performed better with the Trump coalition than Trump performed with the Trump coalition. He did better in rural parts. He did better with blacks. He did better with the white working class and he, he cleaned up in the suburbs. And so the thing is, is there are a lot of people out there saying, okay, this is, this proves the Trump captivity is over. I just don't see it. I think the reason why the 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 rural vote or the the sort of the classically MAGA vote came out for Yunkin is because Trump didn't tell them not to. And he likes destroying Republicans if they don't suck up to him. And the idea that he there's no way he likes the messaging coming out of a lot of quarters about this election, which is that you know, as long as Trump stays quiet and isn't the issue, Republicans can win. That's not what he wants to hear. And the idea that he's going to let people run Yunkin like campaigns in 2022, I'm, I'm just much more skeptical about. Um, a, a lot going on here. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, he, Yunkin was not the Trumpiest candidate in the Republican primary. That was Amanda Chase, uh, the Trump in right. heels. And um, yet Yunkin knew that he would have to appeal to the Trump base to some degree in order to secure the nomination. And, and the, that worked out by, um, by securing Trump's endorsement once he won the nomination. And then for whatever reason, Trump, um, despite raising the possibility that he would become more involved in the campaign, did not. He kind of, right. he stayed away. Um, and there was a freak out on the Republican side in the last week, uh, weekend before the election in Virginia, where Trump suggested he might have a rally in Arlington, Virginia, and every yeah. Republican in, in the state is, ah, and Trump, but then Trump didn't. Um, and so you're right to say that it, uh, um, Trump is not gone. Of course, Trump wasn't even gone from this election. And I mean that Trump appeared on our television screens in Virginia all the time in Terry McAuliffe ads. Right. Um, so he was a factor, uh, in the democratic campaign strategy, but one that was not determinative at all. Um, look, the next year will be different because there are all of these, um, uh, house primaries where Trump is trying to exact revenge on the uh, Republicans who voted to, um, impeach him, uh, earlier this year. And then there are the Senate primaries where Trump has an interest in selecting a MAGA-like candidate and promoting them. Um, the, uh, there's a big danger for the Republican Party, um, especially on the Senate side, 
uh, where candidates uh, really do matter because it's statewide. You don't have uh, sinecures. Um, and uh, uh, the Trumpy candidates can not only present problems of their own, uh, say, look at the scandal surrounding uh, Sean Parnell, who is the Trump-endorsed candidate for the Republican nomination and to replace Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. But if he becomes involved and he starts doing the, you know, the the traveling circus Grateful Dead revival uh, uh, review, um, that could lead to some backlash among suburban voters. We we just don't know. We'll, we'll just we'll have to see. But um, I I did hear one senator, a Republican senator, say that um, Trump is fig- uh, rather Youngkin figured out how to hold Donald Trump's hand under the table in the dark. <laughs> and I think a lot of the Republicans are going to be trying to do that in the, in the next year. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, but I mean, this is, this is the frustrating thing for me for five years is like the, a lot of us were saying that the, the Yunkin model made sense before anyone knew who Yunkin was, right? It was like, if Trump could just let people, Republicans in states where Trump is not popular run their own races without him bigfooting around um, and demanding loyalty and praise and all that kind of stuff. Uh, lots of Republicans wouldn't have lost, right? But it, like he he would rather have the Democrats have Jeff Flake's seat than Jeff Flake be a senator or a corker or any of these kinds of people. Remember his press conference after the t- 2018 midterms where he like goes through a list of People in Laza, Mia Ham did not embrace, you know, yeah, like Mia Love, as, Mia Love, Mia Love, me, that's right. Yeah, didn't show yeah. me the love, Mia. Too bad. And, and like, you know, <laughs> that's not a guy who puts the party first. And I, I think that, 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 that point, no. that observation about Trump has been settled. And so the, the, in some ways you could see the Virginia race and the close call on New Jersey, which people I think are underestimating as almost Pyrrhic because if they if it's sort of like if they wake up slumbering Godzilla and he comes back into Tokyo because of of this it it, it could make things worse in a perverse kind of way yeah i mean um i think the uh i think that applies when trump himself is on the ballot and or in office right Which yeah, is yeah, the yeah, case. yeah and so next year uh, he will be neither on the ballot or nor in office, and so Republican. No matter how much he involves himself, and there will be cases where um, he causes controversy, or the candidate he eventually backs in some of these Senate primaries will cause controversy for themselves. Um, the what I think was really matters is the president, the president's approval the uh, national environment. Um, so uh, the, the Pyrrhic victory uh, could come next year, you know, if it, yeah, if it somehow convinces Trump that he wants to run for president again, I will say that, um, based on the, you know, seven statements emailed to me from Trump, uh, on election night and in the morning, uh, his, you know, his pseudo tweet statements that he emails, uh, to, to his list. Um, I think he's really worried, uh, that people aren't paying enough attention to him in the yeah. wake of Virginia and New Jersey. And uh, the truth is that, you know, life goes on, history recedes into the background, and he has to find some new ways of making himself relevant. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he, I don't think he's been able to settle on that, on what that is because right now it's comp- as always it's self obsessed, but it's also all backward looking. It's all twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah, that's all he really wants to talk about. And that uh, voters, I'm not even sure, you know, how 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 that carries even among Republican voters in an actual you know voting situation. Um. I'm just going to stipulate that you don't think the 2020 election was stolen or the ballots were counted in Italy or any of that stuff. Um, but feel free to correct me. Uh, no, I do not. I do not okay. feel that way. But so, um, uh, it does, you know, so look, looking at the, ahead to 2024, it does create this weird dynamic, right? In a, in a traditional scenario, and it's not like we've had a lot of previous presidents try to run again four years later, but there've been a couple, right? Um, but even in a somewhat analogous scenarios, like if he had been the vice president or whatever, the way you would deal with things on a debate stage in 2024 is say, um, you had your shot, right? And you couldn't get reelected. It's time for fresh blood. And, um, and his insistence and his insistence that people tolerate the lie that the election was stolen gives a new out from that debate tactic um, that, at least in our lifetimes, we've never seen. Because he can say, what do you mean I lost? I didn't lose. The election was stolen from me. And, um, and then you get a debate about whether or not the election was stolen. And it's very weird to sort of game out. How many people on the stage is Mike Pompeo going to say, yes, you're, you know, you're right. You do deserve, you, you were robbed of your second term, but it's now too late for you to have it now. I mean, those are just weird arguments. And so like, how do you, do you, first of all, I guess, do you think he's going to run? And second of all, if he runs, who else do you think will still run? Um, I don't know if he's going to run. I think a lot depends for him financially on people believing he's going to run for president. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, one of his main revenue streams right now are these small dollar donations that he continues to uh, just rake in and, um, including let's go Brandon t-shirts, <laughs> merch and everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, and clearly the second he says he's not running for president, then no one will pay attention to him. And the most important thing to Donald Trump is that you pay attention to him. Um, so there's no real clear incentives for him to say that he's not going to run until the very moment that he says it, which could be well into, um, 2023, um, and even at the beginning of 2024. Um, I think that means that people should act as though he is going to run. And I've been just kind of shocked and appalled, uh, though probably not surprised by the number of Republicans who preemptively say that they will support him if he runs for president again. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, there's another, there's surely a more diplomatic uh, answer, you know, um, and yet just the cowering in fear is, uh, of, of Trump and of his voters is uh, just so uh, discomforting. Um, however, I do think there are several people who will run uh, regardless of Trump's decision. Uh, one is Chris Christie. We, he's already said it. Another is, uh, I believe, Secretary Pompeo. I also believe uh, 
former Vice President Pence is um, moving toward running no matter what Trump decides. Uh, so there will be candidates on stage um, uh, besides Trump. It is very possible that, you know, uh, we'll not only have an open primary on the Republican side, but a contested primary on the Democratic side as well. Um, so uh, uh, I think that even if Trump does run, it's not it's not in the bag uh, for him, mm-hmm. despite what the polls suggest. Um, no, I, I think that's fair. Um, also, like there are, while there are obviously some people who are not going to run if he runs, there are some people who might only run if he runs. And one such example would be Liz Cheney, who I mm-hmm. think sort of uh, wants to just make his life miserable. And, um, and I will just say, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a partisan guy these days, um, but I would enjoy watching that uh, <laughs> of Liz Cheney just taking it to him on, on the stage as a pain in the ass candidate, right? I mean, uh, maybe Liz can like sincerely really run for president. I, I, I'm a little skeptical about it, but like as someone who just tortures Donald Trump on stage, it would. I would enjoy that. You know, those debates uh, on the Republican side were spectacles uh, in 2015 and 2016. Um, uh, there was an entertainment value to them, but they'll be, uh, they'll be, uh, you know, um, what, eight, eight years in the past by the time we get yeah. to the 2024 cycle. Uh, time moves, doesn't stop. I, I've, I, I've often think of this um, uh, f- phrase that, uh, the the French novelist Marcel Proust used to describe literary this literary scene in in France, where he said, "We must always have new names. There always needs to be new things." Um, and and you see that you know with Youngkin's rise, uh, you're going to see that next year with a whole crop of uh, candidates, some good, some bad. Um, there's there's this quality of uh, danger, rather for Trump. Um, uh, where he just be, you know he just feels old he's old news mm-hmm. you know um and clearly he'll always have a connection with the trumpiest of trumpers but they're not a majority of the republican party um so uh i you know i'm i'm backing my way into sounding hopeful and i really should stop before i begin <laughs> yeah, to believe it that's not allowed let's just assume <laughs> let's just assume the worst <laughs> yeah well, let's just assume War with China will change all this. So, um, um, so like, let's assume that you're basically brought outlines right about all of this and that Trump isn't reelected and all of that, but he gives it a try, doesn't work out. The party's definitely going to be more populist than I would like for a long time to come. There are a lot of Trumpy reinforcements who are poised to come into the Senate in 2022 or 2024. Um, where, and we should remind listeners, you've been working on a Sisyphusian task of a a new history of American conservatism, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, uh, where does it stand right now? Before I ask my question, it's, Um, it's, uh, it's available for pre-order at amazon.com. Is Uh, it really? So the the pub date is? April 19th, 2022, the Biden inflation, I think is affecting this, uh, pub date, which is still about six months away from the time that we're having this conversation. And, um, a year 
uh, well, almost a year since I actually uh, turned in the final uh, copy. I guess I turned in the final, final copy in, uh, in October, uh, rather in August, and then the copy edit in, in October. So it's done. The book is done. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, like I say, it's called The Right, The Hundred-Year uh-huh. War for American Conservatism. And it's there on on Amazon. It's very exciting, and uh, yeah, it's it's the 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 long lead time um, probably has to do with supply chains, right? But every, everything's about supply chains these days. So, um, okay, so from the perspective of someone who just wrote a no doubt wonderful history of American conservatism, what does American conservatism look like in the process of of the GOP? going more like will the will the youngkins win or is it ultimately does the future belong to the hollies or the vances or 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 the cruises uh my you know my sense is that um youngkin is much more in the mainstream of american politics and uh and showed that in his um in his victory the fact that every single um, county in virginia had a red shift you know, shifted toward him. Um, and he, he was able to do the, um, kind of the Republican two-step of, you know, embracing cultural populism and anti-elitism and opposing the left on a cultural issue, but also not freaking out the middle and, uh, the, the independent voters. And, uh, by also, having uh, an economic agenda, talking about cuts to the gasoline tax and to the uh, grocery tax in Virginia, which in a time of inflation matters, right? Um, You can also see in uh, Cittarelli, um, the 16-point swing in New Jersey, where, um, you know, that wasn't like Cittarelli running ads, talking about how everyone needs to have babies and um, move to Hungary. He was running ads about taxes, (laughs) <laughs> you know, very kind of traditional vanilla Republican yeah. issue. And I was struck this week because as the uh, Virginia and New Jersey elections were taking place, the uh, National Conservative Conference was happening in Orlando, Florida. And so you had all these uh, high-minded theoretical ideas um, uh, about nationalism, a lot about religion and social conservatism and, you know, reinstating blue laws and, um, (laughs) huge, huge, uh, parental benefits and such, or industrial policy, all this was going on in Florida. And yet how did Republicans clean up the basics? You know, parents should have a role in their children's education. Taxes should be lower. We shouldn't have to worry about crime. You know, I mean that, that law and order, that's a Republican issue for the last half century (laughs) more, you know? So I I do think that um, things level out. That's not to say there won't be some modifications, like like you said, you know, there probably will be a little bit more um, uh, protectionist. Um, Republicans won't be uh, um, uh, afraid of saying that, uh, you know, we should complete the border wall um, and that, uh, you know, Maybe we need reforms to our immigration uh, policy to make it more merit-based. On the other hand, the second they start talking about immigration moratoriums, which mm-hmm. the f- former um, Trump speechwriter Stephen Miller has been doing, they're going to just lose. I think they'll lose a lot, 
of support. And um, so, uh, where does the fu- who does the future belong to? The people who decide to own the future. And uh, right now, there is a lot of activity on this national conservative right, institution building, organizing. Um, uh, I can't believe I'm going to use this as a verb, but dialoguing. Um, mm. Sorry. I'll find some way to prevent, uh, to repent. Um, on the other hand, the, you know, it's a lot of kind of basic Republicans with op- uh, forward-looking uh, kitchen table messages are going to win. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the, divi- the, the divide between those two camps uh, is, is real. And it's like, at what point do you actually have to translate your ideas into actual substance? And this is something that the national conservatives have not been able to do. Yeah. So I'm of two minds about this. I can make a case that I believe pretty sincerely that all of it is incredibly stupid and a waste of time. And I can make a case that all of it is intellectually unpersuasive. I'm not going to call it stupid, but like intellectually unpersuasive, a historic, um, balderdash, but it could succeed in a meaningful way. You know, I, I had George will on here a couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago at some time interval prior to today. I can't remember. And time he, is a flat circle, Jonah. It really is. Um, and, uh, you know, he was making the case, a very remnant friendly case that, um, committed minorities um intellectual minorities are um essentially the levers of history right and he said he looked it up recently and i can't remember the exact number but it was something like at their height prior to the revolution there were like only twenty-eight thousand bolsheviks in all of russia or whatever and and you know this stuff now better than i do which you know makes me sad but the the original buckleyite movement was a very small thing. It was a bunch of committed intellectuals who took taking institutions of power seriously and took making arguments seriously. And I think the advantage they had is that their arguments were actually persuasive in ways that like, let's be more like hungry just isn't, you know? Um, and I always love to envision someone like Sora Bamari, who's a nice guy personally, but, uh, I think he's, uh, he's, He's so deep, deep in the bunker these days in his own stuff that he doesn't really see how silly some of it is. But I love the idea of like Sorbamari going to a bar and talking to, you know, the chapter president of Bikers for Trump about how, you know, our alliance will lead to a post-liberal integralist society where we ban porn and, you know, and everyone goes to church. And it's like... The, the weirdness of these nationalist conservative guys hitching to a fundamentally populist libertarian movement as if it's proof of their proof of concept. It it's insane to me, but they're the ones who actually believe their stuff. And a lot of the people who believe what you and I believe, I mean, we're not on the same page on everything, but we're basically broad conservative movement, conservatives, you know, limited government guys, we think again, I don't want to speak for you. So I mean, I'd be interested if I'm getting you wrong, but I think you think there's more to recommend the fusionist consensus than to criticize about it. 
Um, doesn't mean it was perfect or anything like that, but you know, there are very few of us were dispersed and we're not, um, committed ideologues in the way that the, the, the nationalist conservative types are. And I worry about their, their future success. I mean, I, I do think it will crash against the actual voters because the voters don't want what aren't going to want what they're selling. Um, but a lot of damage can be done. I mean, a lot of damage can be done if the GOP is taken over by people who are committed to a lot of these goofy ideas um, in the process. And one of the biggest points of damage is it'll get a lot of Democrats elected. So I'm like, I, I, I go back and forth about all of this. Um, you know, since you are, you know, since you are the pangloss here, you know, you are the, you know, the, the, the voice of sunny optimism. Uh, how do I thread that circle or thread, thread that needle? I think the missing link is uh, political leadership. And, um, you know, when I look at the National Conservative uh, Conference that happened this week, and I haven't watched all the speeches, but I've kind of been following it on Twitter and uh, looking at some of the uh, feeds of people who were there. Um, they, had, they attracted a few, quite a few politicians. Um, some of whom have presidential uh, aspirations. So they had uh, Ted Cruz there, they had Marco Rubio there, they had Josh Hawley there, they had J.D. Vance there. Um, but uh, the the thing about these guys that they that they hosted is that they're all senators, and senators. Uh, I I like I like a lot of senators. Um, they're they're friends. They're good people. They don't really do a lot. Um, the, the Senate, the Senate operates according to the leadership. Uh, and so if you're a Senator, what do you do? You basically write books and you, um, submit bills that aren't really intended to actually become law. Uh, they're meant to position you, uh, for your eventual presidential run. And so right. you'd have to, you have to actually test these things. Um, and you have to test them, uh, not only running for Senate. Okay. Um, so the Marco Rubio who's running for re-election next year in Florida is a different Marco Rubio uh, than the one who won it in uh, 2016, right? Um, he's now a common good capitalism Marco Rubio. Let's start regulating corporate boards to get rid of a wokeism Marco Rubio. It'll be interesting to see how that how that goes. Now, again, national environment might not matter. But when you run it as a president, uh, presidential candidate, then you get a better idea of the um, reach of some of these uh, policy proposals to the degree that they're actually serious policy proposals. Just think about Trump for a second. One, he didn't run on any of, I mean, he ran on build the wall, have Mexico pay for it, America first foreign policy. Um, and, uh, I'm not going to touch social security and Medicare, right? right. So these, right. these are not the ideas that are really, you know, the most, um, au courant at the national conservative conference. Um, so, you know, what you'd have to see is, uh, a Josh Hawley presidential campaign where he starts um, talking about, you know, antitrust or whatever. But even that, I mean, it's like, okay, so he's a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, and, you know, mm. um, he, or he'd have to like really introduce some type of, you know, uh, the most radical visions of, of these guys is, you know, um, right, ban porn. We're going we're gonna to ban porn from the internet. We're going to erect some type of great firewall of China. That, uh, that we will be able to police pornography on the American internet. Um, well, let's see. Let's see. Yeah. My, my sense is 
uh, that's not, people aren't going to, you know, it's just not going to appeal to people. People actually care about their everyday lives. Now, in my ideal world, uh, we would, we would have severe restrictions and censorship on pornography. Maybe that's, oh, I, 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 you know, I'm totally with you. I mean, that's one of but politically in the real world of space and time and of voters, I don't think that's what they wake up in the morning thinking about right now. Voters think up, uh, uh, about one, uh, their grocery and fuel costs are doubling Two, They have to order the Thanksgiving Turkey weeks in advance. Uh, three, somehow a small Haitian city showed up under a bridge in Texas this summer and what's yeah. going on there. Uh, and, and four, uh, you know, police, despite all their problems are a good thing. <laughs> we need more of them. You know, that's, that's removed from what's been being discussed in Orlando. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been writing a lot about elite theory. We don't have to get all deep into it, but like the, it does seem to me, like when I was saying about George talking about committed elites and how they have impact, that's the problem we have now, right? Particularly on the democratic side. Um, the, the, there's a very small, very insular group of coastal, highly educated people, sort of the people that David Shore says everyone should stop listening to, who pretend that they have these grand majoritarian positions on things, when in reality, it's just, there's nothing majoritarian about defund the police. And it was obvious in the polls last August, but like the media, the, the sympathetic media, which has a lot of the same people from the same social circles and the same tribes as it were treated that stuff seriously. And it's, 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 it's another one of these Martin Bailey things where like it got an enormous amount of airing in a positive way. And then the second Republicans or conservatives started to engage with it, then all of a sudden they retreat to, no, we just want to restructure how we do some aspects of law enforcement and, you know, no one wants to abolish the police. And one of my favorite examples of this I've talked about on here before was um, on MSNBC, they had some activist guy, and I think it was Stephanie Rule, who was like, it was starting to dawn on the hosts of MSNBC that maybe this was a bad direction to go. And so she was trying to do like, of course, when people say abolish the police or defund the police, they don't actually mean defund the police or abolish the police they mean commit resources allocate resources differently blah 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 blah. and then this black professor from like ucla or someplace is like i just want to correct that setup no we actually mean <laughs> abolish the police <laughs> and it got to the point where the new york times thinking they were doing someone a favor ran a huge op-ed with the headline from some guy who believes this stuff saying, yes, we actually really mean abolish the police was the headline. And then these same elites, when conservatives sort of take it seriously, say, oh, you're just pandering, as Obama would put it, fake culture war issues, you know, and they retreat to some some nonsense. And I just I, I am so utterly committed to the proposition that the, whichever party can convince Americans they're not crazy and just like a normal party that could be the majority party for a really long time. But the elites in these parties, I mean, like the nationalist conservatives, that's the kind of influence they want to have. They're not quite there yet, but, um, and that worries me. And, and so it makes me think about structural fixes to the system that 
don't make both parties so susceptible to being hijacked by small ideological cadres. Um, and I just don't know how to do that. Ideological polarization is uh, really hurting our ability to get to a sane politics, in my view. The voters yeah. are sane, but our politics isn't. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons is the educational sort that's happened in America and the ideological division between the parties and the fact that a consequence of those two things is how close our elections are <laughs> and that there is yeah. actually no majority. Um, and so you have this bizarre situation where clearly the results nationwide, I mean, the uh, uh, Buffalo mayor's race, the uh, Seattle district attorney's race, uh, district attorneys in uh, Long Island, and then you have the Virginia and New Jersey races, clearly shows uh, maybe it's time to pump the brakes on this Biden agenda and what you're, you know, change what you're doing. And yet, what is the response from Biden and the Democratic leadership? Well, now we really have to pass right. our $4 trillion agenda uh, at a time of inflation. Um, and and that's because the the ideologues at the top of our parties see every time that they are in power as potentially the last time they are ever in power. Mm -hmm. And so you have to do everything, um, no matter what signals you're getting from the electorate. And uh, somehow this, uh, for there to be a lasting majority, um, uh, that has to change. Otherwise, we just have this, um, what's the trendy buzzword now? People are using the thermostatic politics right, where, right. you know, one party, it's a time of unstable majorities where one party gets in, um, they interpret their electoral mandate as an ideological mandate. They try to cram through as much of their agenda as they possibly can. And independent voters and the out party just rebel and then throw them out. And, yeah. <laughs> and this, this process has just been going on now for really for the last uh, 20 some years. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, it's it. so we're recording this Thursday morning. Uh, Abigail Spanberger has this quote in the Times that's getting a lot of attention about basically saying what you and I have written probably eight times now, which is that. Uh, Nobody elected Joe Biden to be FDR. And um, it's really interesting to see the progressive reaction to this on social media because it's just tons of people saying, I voted for him to be FDR. That's what I wanted him to be. And they seem to miss the point that, like, okay, but the people who voted for Mitt Romney and Ted Cruz and... um and Mitch McConnell, they didn't vote for them to go along with Joe Biden being FDR. And um, uh, I did. It's, we haven't aired it yet. It'll air, I think, next week uh, with our colleague Jay Cost on his new book about Madison. And it's one of these points that he, you know, he he really kind of nails in. And I consider myself a Madisonian. I like the Madison Madisonian construct and all that. But one of the points he says is like the whole part of the whole point was to lay you know to layer into the system not just vertically but horizontally lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of elections at all sorts of levels of government and and that's the way you sort of take the temperature of what the american people want you don't consult the youngest pajama boy guys in some progressive data firm and you don't put your finger to the wind at the national conservative 
you know, convention, you have lots of elections at the local level and all the, and the big ideas are supposed to come up from the bottom, like in how a bill comes a law, schoolhouse rock. And, and so the whole flight 93 election schema, um, that's one of the things that creates this dynamic that you're talking about, because everyone thinks this is the most important lecture, not only the most important election ever, but the last, maybe the last election ever where we can save the country. When in fact, everyone, I mean, it's been a year since Biden was elected. We just had a whole bunch of elections in this country that we're interpreting about what do the people really want. That's not supposed to work. And yet people pay attention to basically one election every four years. And other than that, they just don't listen to what these actual subordinate elections are really saying and how the system is supposed to work. I've been uh, teaching a seminar on uh, the writing of Irving Kristol. And uh, in uh, one of his essays, he makes a point that um, Americans have never really figured out a theory of representation, mm-hmm. which is to say the, uh, the elected officials never really know who they're there to represent. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they there to represent the people who put them in office? Or are they there to represent the interest group coalition that supported them? Or are they there to actually represent the entire public? Um, and this leads to all those sorts of confusions and kind of absurdities. The classic example being Obama after the 2014 midterm, where you know he just lost the House again, he lost the Senate, um, his agenda is just in shambles. Uh, and yet Obama says, uh, well, you know, I, I heard the voters last night, but I also heard all the voters who supported Democrats and the people who didn't vote for all, if at all, <laughs> and I'm going to represent them, <laughs> you know, that's, that's complete autonomy from the actual results. Um, so there has to be, you know, some combination of a belief in the public interest and an interest that goes beyond your own partisan and ideological commitments, as well as an understanding that, oh, when the voters tell you something, uh, you know, maybe you should take that into account. Maybe, maybe the voters, you know, on, in the abstract say that all of these goodies you want to pack into your reconciliation bill are popular. At the same time, there's clearly a, a, a reluctance, I think. And, and they, uh, I've, I've seen some polling data that suggests that voters have begun to connect the inflation with the spending bills coming out of Washington. Mm-hmm. So you would might say then, if you're a Democrat at like Abigail Spanberger, for example, who's very sharp and in one of these districts that is, I mean, almost uh, on the chopping block uh, for, for next year, um, uh, you might say, oh, well, maybe let's just slow down, you know, which is what Manchin has been saying for months. And of right, course, right. he's despised by, by the ideologues on the left. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate, I hate saying this, but the last president we had who actually approached the job in terms of like heeding the will of voters and changing his course was Bill Clinton. Yeah. And um, I think my record is very clear. I think Bill Clinton had other flaws, but um, uh, the, the fact is, is like, you know, he, he had a shambolic first couple of years. He got the shellacking in 1994. He declared the era of big government is over. He started running on school uniforms and poll testing where he should have vacation and became a deficit reduction guy because, you know, the Perot vote was important. And like, there's a lot to be said for that. And you just don't, you get much more a sense like President 
Biden understood it rhetorically, but does not know how to govern the way that matches with his rhetoric. You know, he said he wanted to like represent all Americans, not just democratic Americans. That's not how he's governed. He's been captured. It feels like by those ideological cadres and, and Trump was even more explicit. He, he flat out said, you know, my people are the best and the rest of the people don't matter, which is kind of gross. Um, but I, I just don't get why the incentive structure creates. I mean, it seems to me like there's a problem with the system. If I mean, the criticism of Bill Clinton used to be he was so nakedly political. He only did make, did what made sense politically. And it turns out that the founding fathers in Madison had something good in mind about a president who who did a little of that. We and, would cheer it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, today that's triangulation you know, like, would sound great to you and me today. And, and let's yeah. not forget even Clinton's triangula- triangulation inspired a triangulation on the part of George W. Bush. Right. Right. Because he right. was the compassionate conservative. He was right. going to talk about health care and education. Right. Those were his issues. What's changed? Uh, one, let's think about uh, where Clinton was coming from, the South. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there aren't many Southern Democrats anymore. Uh, but yeah. being a Southern Democrat, I think, kind of habituated him to the sense that you have to maneuver, that politics is maneuver. But as you point out, when he got into office, he too succumbed to this uh, fallacy that, oh, uh, I can be as liberal as I want, even though I only won 43% of the vote in 1992. Right. It took losing Virginia and New Jersey and, and New York City in 93, and it took the Republican Revolution of 1994 before Clinton turned to Dick Morris and said, yeah. okay, now let's just start trying to figure out how we can remain popular, get the economy, right. deal get with Get those toes people. out of your mouth and help me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you don't have that anymore. We have uh, very geographically distinct parties. We have this ideological sort. And then we have a, a media and a social media that rewards the most extreme viewpoints. And so it would take, it takes it would, an act of political will to not listen to these people right. uh, and actually try to maneuver and figure out how to assemble a, um, a coalition of the center plus whatever you are, you know. Um, and the, the, the lack of political will uh, in this country is just stunning. I mean, um, no one, uh, is ready to take big risks. Um, and, and look at Biden. I mean, Biden doesn't know what he's doing half the time, you know, <laughs> what he's just not in a position to, to do that, uh, for reasons of age, for reasons of experience and, you know, uh, for reasons of, um, uh, kind of the, the inner circle that he's assembled uh, and relied on for decades and that he's not about to change. Yeah. I mean, Steve, I had Steve Tellers on here the other day and he was like, I think he got it right, which is that the, the, the key explanation for Biden's falling in public standing and in the polls and all that is that he had convinced a large swath of Americans that he was the, the titular head of the normie faction in American politics. And it turned out that he may be kind of a normie in private life or whatever. He still has the affectation of a normie, but he's completely unwilling or incapable to stand up to ideologues and, and actually forcefully make the case. I mean, Bill Clinton would have sister soldiered 10 different people by now, you know, to send that signal, to reassure 
independents and Biden just is not in them. Well, you know, uh, it's not been remarked upon Jonah, but the day before the election, that NPR Marist poll came out showing that uh, 44% of Democrats want someone else on the ticket in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, something happened over the summer. Yeah. Where even even Democrats, partisan Democrats, people who work in politics like you and me, they just woke up and saw Biden with different eyes. And yeah. I think it was Afghanistan. I mean, I, obviously it was Afghanistan. Um, but then everything started. Uh, one crisis began careening into the next. And so it wasn't yeah. just Afghanistan. It was also the border. And it wasn't just the border. It was the, the rise in the cost of living, which affects every American. And it wasn't just that, it was Biden's kind of, uh, you know, wishy-washiness on the pandemic and, you know, when are we going to be able to take these masks off? And, um, you know, I'm for private vaccine mandates, but the government-imposed vaccine mandate caused a lot of backlash too. Um, So he's just in a bad position. I think the road to recovery would begin with firing Ron Klain. And uh, he won't be able to do that because Ron Klain has hidden the keys to his car. That's the, uh, (laughs) he won't give him the chance. (laughs) All right. On that note, uh, Matt Connelly, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, I will take your cautious hopefulness under advisement. I can't quite endorse it quite yet. And obviously we'll have you back on again, probably much sooner than pub date, but no matter what, (laughs) obviously I'm going to have to take a, a, a jeweler's glass to your book and, um, find reasons to criticize you for it but you should um, get the galleys soon jonah so uh, you know you'll, uh, you'll i'm sure i'm sure you'll have a heavily annotated copy of wrong again continent I, I am sick of your lies but um i'll believe it when i see it so matthew thank you again and uh it's great to see you great to see you okay so matt has left the uh studio and um or the zoom chat or whatever and um, I'm not going to keep you much longer because I'm really, really under the weather. So I apologize if um, at times I was rambly or in- incoherent. As far as I can tell, it was the entire conversation was a dream. Um, so uh, hopefully I'll feel better enough to write a G file tomorrow. I'm sorry I missed the Wednesday G file. Um, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Hopefully I can explain it to everybody um, in good cheer uh down the road um or very soon just just some stuff going on and um other than that um thanks everybody for uh listening we had a great time last night at casa goldberg uh about 95 percent of the dispatch staff came to my house to um you know allegedly eat my wife's great cooking and it is great cooking um but zoe and pippa are pretty committed that the real reason they all came is to meet them um on that i'll just i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast <laughs>